Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you the story of when the NBA color barrier was broken. But this is a story not just about one player. This is a story about three players. This story is different from the one about Jackie Robinson. Robinson was the first black player to play in modern Major League Baseball when he started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers on opening day on April 15, 1947. He was the only black player to play for any Major League team that season. He won the Rookie of the Year and led the entire National League in stolen bases in his first season. By his third season in 1949, he was the National League MVP. Then in 1955, the Brooklyn Dodgers won the World Series. He was such a cultural milestone that books have been written and movies have been made about his story. In 2013, a movie was made about his story called 42, which was his jersey number. The movie stars Chadwick Boseman as Jackie Robinson and Harrison Ford as Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Dodgers and the man who single-handedly made the decision to bring Robinson up to the majors. In fact, his jersey number 42 is not just retired by the Dodgers, but it is retired across all of Major League Baseball. Nobody wears that number anymore for any team, except on April 15th every single year. That is the anniversary of Robinson's first game. So every year on that day, every single player on every single team wears the number 42 in his honor. What Jackie Robinson did in 1947 was an enormous deal. It was the biggest story of that season. I'm going to be honest here and say that the breaking of the color barrier in the NBA was not quite as dramatic and was not quite as monumental. But that does not mean that the story is not worth telling or that it lacks any importance. This is an extremely important story. I only mean to say that in the NBA, it was not as big of a deal as it was in Major League Baseball. Relatively few stories were written about it at the time, as compared to Jackie Robinson. It is almost as if most people just did not care that much. At least they did not care as much as baseball fans did. In retrospect, that's a good thing, right? I mean, obviously, I am a product of my own time. I have never cared one iota about where a player comes from or what he looks like. The only question that has ever mattered to me as a fan is can he help my team win? I am an overall sports fan, not just a basketball fan, although basketball is my absolute favorite. Being from Southern California, I support the LA Angels of Major League Baseball, the LA Rams of the National Football League, the Anaheim Ducks of the National Hockey League, and the LA Galaxy of Major League Soccer. Those are my teams. And again, anytime any of my teams bring in a new rookie or free agent, the only thing I care about is if the player can help the team win. Nothing else has ever mattered to me. So let us get on with this story for today. The year is 1950. 
As I mentioned at the top of this story, it's about three players, as each of these players had a part in being the first. Our first player is Chuck Cooper, who was the first black player to be drafted by an NBA team. He was selected with the first pick of the second round, which happened to be the 13th overall pick because there were only 12 teams at the time. Red Auerbach was in charge of drafting players for the Boston Celtics as it was his first season with the team as both the coach and the general manager. When it was his turn, he said that he wanted Chuck Cooper of Duquesne University. Cooper was an All-American in college and one of the best players coming out of college that year. One of the other owners reminded Auerbach that Cooper was a black player. Now, I am not going to repeat exactly what that other owner said, but he did not refer to Cooper as a black player. He used a very different description. Auerbach said that he did not care if Cooper was polka dot. The kid can play basketball and Auerbach wanted him on the Celtics. At the time, there was an unwritten rule against drafting or signing black players in the NBA. Many of those in charge felt that having black players would offend the predominantly white fan base. But Auerbach did not care. He only cared about winning and he knew that Cooper could help with that. But for most of the players, it was no big deal. Most every player in the NBA had played with or against black players in college or high school, so it was not that big of a deal for them. In fact, the old National Basketball League, which merged into the NBA in 1949, had black players for years. The NBL was the league that gave us the Lakers, Kings, 76ers, Hawks, and Pistons. As for Cooper, he played seven seasons in the NBA. His career scoring average was just above six points per game, but he was drafted for his defensive abilities, which he definitely brought to his team. After just four seasons with the Celtics, he moved on to play for the Milwaukee Hawks, who had relocated to St. Louis, and then he played one final season with the Fort Wayne Pistons before retiring. All in all, he was an okay player. He was not an all-star or anything like that, but he was a solid role player. And maybe that is why he does not get more attention, because he was not one of the all-time greats like Jackie Robinson was in baseball. Cooper was later inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2019 for being the first black player drafted into the NBA. Now this is a good place to take a break, and we'll be right back with the story of our other two players. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and let us keep going with our other two players. We just covered Chuck Cooper, who was the first black player drafted by the NBA when the Celtics selected him in 1950. But Cooper was not the first black player to sign an NBA contract. That honor goes to Nat Sweetwater Clifton. He earned his nickname of Sweetwater because he really liked drinking soda, or pop as it is known in some parts. His road to the NBA was a little different. Clifton had been playing professional basketball in other places for five years before joining the NBA. After leaving college, he signed on with the New York Wrens, the famous barnstorming team that dominated professional basketball in the 1920s. I have done an entire episode on the New York Wrens. If you want to hear that story, go all the way back to episode 2 to check it out. But this was the end of the New York Wrens. After two years of playing for them, Clifton signed on with the Harlem Globetrotters, where he played for three years. And by the way, these were not the same Globetrotters that you see playing today. Since black players were not allowed in the NBA, some of the very best black players ended up on the Globetrotters, 
just so that they could keep playing somewhere. The Globetrotters of the 1940s could really play basketball. Now, I'm not trying to insult the current Globetrotters, I, I really am not. The players that are on the Globetrotters today are good players. While it is primarily a comedy show, the players have to be able to dribble, pass, and shoot a basketball in order to make the routines work. Many of today's Globetrotter players play Division I college basketball or have even played professional basketball overseas. They are good players but they are not NBA caliber players, or else they would be in the NBA. But in the 1940s, nearly the entire Globetrotters team was good enough basketball-wise to play in the NBA. They just needed a chance. Clifton was the first one to get that chance. In fact, in 1948, the Globetrotters challenged the Minneapolis Lakers with George Mikan to a game that was played in February of 1948. The Lakers were the defending champions and were extremely confident that they could beat the Globetrotters. Well, the Globetrotters won that game, proving that they were a better team than the champions. Nat Sweetwater Clifton was part of that Globetrotters team, and now he was finally getting his chance to play in the NBA. Once Auerbach had taken Chuck Cooper in the draft, the other teams looked at each other and basically said, I guess it's okay to start signing black players. So the New York Knicks immediately contacted Clifton to see if he would like to make the move to the NBA. And Clifton said yes. He played seven seasons for the Knicks, averaging about 11 points per game, and he went to one All-Star game in 1957. He then played one final season for the Detroit Pistons before retiring. It is very obvious that he made an impact on the NBA and helped pave the way for other players. He is also in the Hall of Fame, having been inducted in 2014 as a contributor for being the first black player to sign an NBA contract. Our final player for today is the first black player to actually play in an NBA game. His name is Earl Lloyd. He was also taken in the 1950 draft just like Chuck Cooper, but Lloyd was drafted in the ninth round by the Washington Capitals. He was the 101st player selected overall. He made the team and was part of the starting lineup on opening night. Being the first black player to actually play in an NBA game was more about luck of the draw than anything else. A number of black players were signed to NBA contracts that summer, like Cooper and Clifton, who I already mentioned. It just so happened that when the NBA put out their schedule for the 1950-51 season, there would be only one game on opening night, the Washington Capitals against the Rochester Royals. It was Halloween, that's October 31st, 1950, and the NBA had scheduled just that one game, so that is what allowed Earl Loy to become the first black player to play in an NBA game. The Boston Celtics would open their season the very next night on November 1st when Chuck Cooper played his first game. Nat Sweetwater Clifton would not play his first game for the Knicks until their season started on November 4th, just a few days later. As for Lloyd, he played only that one season for the Washington Capitals averaging six points per game and then the Capitals went out of business and all of the players had to find other places to play. Lloyd actually went into the military to serve in the Korean War for a year. However, he never saw any frontline action. After one year of military service, he returned to the NBA as a player for the Syracuse Nationals, winning the championship with them in 1955. He then played two final seasons with the Detroit Pistons before retiring himself. He averaged eight points per game for his career, and he had a solid NBA career before going into a post-retirement career. He worked as a placement counselor working with underprivileged kids in Detroit, his last NBA stop. He even worked for a while with the Bing Group in Detroit, which was a metal processing company owned by fellow NBA player 
and Hall of Famer Dave Bing. Earl Lloyd was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2003 for having been the first black player to play in an NBA game. So there you have it. We have Chuck Cooper, the first black player to be drafted, Nat Sweetwater Clifton, the first black player to sign an NBA contract, and Earl Lloyd, the first black player to play in an NBA game. By coincidence, all three players ended their NBA careers with the Pistons. Today, the NBA has players from every part of the globe. There are players from Asia, Africa, South America, the Middle East, and Australia. Nobody cares anymore where are players from. At least most people don't care. They only care if the player can help the team win, just as it should be. So join us next time when we share the story of the rematch between the Minneapolis Lakers and the Harlem Globetrotters. We covered the first matchup back in episode 21 if you want to check it out, but this is the story of the rematch between these two powerhouse teams. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics in fact here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network this is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.